we have over the past number of months been dealing, as I've said to you, with more than our fair share of struggles. We have had people deal with acute struggles with their own sin, overcoming temptation, fighting for joy through the struggles that they have, in some, say, placed, in some senses, placed upon themselves because of bad decisions they've made. We have had relationships that have begun to come apart that do not look like they're going to come back together. We have had a young couple who longed for conception for a long time find out that the baby that was to be born to them will actually not survive birth. We have had undiagnosed sickness continue in a family, and to this day they still don't know exactly what's going on, and they labor in pain and agony trying to help their daughter work through this. We have had two people in the past week pass away, members of the family. We have another, probably this week, who will pass away, and he may or may not know Christ. There's not clarity on that. We have had our fair share of job struggles, of financial struggles. Some of you are looking forward to the holidays not necessarily with lots of joy and expectation, but with trepidation because you're going to be entering into difficult situations with your families. Seems like in a church our size, a small church, we have had more than our fair share of struggle. I don't know how long it will continue. Some of the things that I just mentioned to you will have resounding effects for days to come. In other words, the, the things that some of us are facing are not going to go away tomorrow. The pain, the agony, the frustration, the struggle is going to continue. But it is no mistake under the providence of God that we find ourselves now at this season, the season where we celebrate the first advent of Jesus our Savior. In the text that we have been considering over the past number of weeks, in Galatians chapter 4, from verse 4 and then today down through verse 7, I think demonstrates to us the purposes of the first advent of Jesus Christ. In this text in Galatians, Paul is writing to the churches to help them to understand that the first advent of Jesus gives us hope. That this was more than just a sentimental story, but that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became a man. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. He was Jesus, the one who reminded us that God saves. And this letter where Paul is helping the churches to see that Jesus and Jesus alone is their hope for salvation, he reminds them of the incarnation of Jesus. So what Paul is doing here, and this is unique in Paul's letters, is he subtly hints at the necessity of the incarnation of Jesus if salvation is to be a, a reality at all. In other words, there is no cross, there is no tomb, there is no resurrection unless there is a real human. 
So the Son of God became the Son of Man, a real man. Nothing less than God, but, but taking upon himself the addition of a humanity. He suffered like we suffer. He was tempted like we are tempted, yet without sin. He lived under the ordinances of God, the laws of God, and kept them in every respect. And then he tasted death for all mankind. So through his obedience to God's law, and through his obedience to the Father's design to go to the cross, Jesus kept the law we did not and could not keep, and died the death that we deserved. He truly became the second Adam, where the first Adam failed to keep all of God's laws and therefore cast the race into sin. Jesus, Paul calls, the second Adam, who came along and kept all the laws perfectly. He did what the first Adam did not, and all of Adam's offspring did not. And then he died in our place as a substitute. And if we will trust him, we can have life. And so what Paul is arguing for in this letter is that Jesus is our life. That Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. That the only way to pass from death to life, the only way to be rid of sin and its consequences is to turn to Jesus and Jesus alone and to have a rock-solid confidence in him. Again, to be clear, this is not Jesus plus good works. This is not Jesus plus church attendance. This is not Jesus plus philanthropy, giving to the poor. This is not Jesus plus mercy or kindness. This is Jesus and Jesus alone. And this Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, had to become a real man. And Paul is saying here in this text that the incarnation is inseparable from our gospel hope. And so Paul says here in the text in verse 4 of Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We saw two weeks ago that the first purpose of the first advent of Christ was for Jesus to settle our debts, to take care of our condemnation. In fact, the logic of the first couple of verses of the text are that God sovereignly and graciously sent his son to rescue us rebels condemned to death in order that we might become his beloved children. That is the first purpose of the first advent of Jesus Christ. God sovereignly and graciously sent his son through his sovereign plan to rescue us rebels condemned to death by our own choices in order that we might become his beloved children. So we, we pass from rebels under condemnation to sons, his children, a dramatic transformation. Then we saw last week in verse 6 
that Jesus has fundamentally changed the relationship between us and God. He has sent his spirit into our hearts and therefore we can cry out, Abba, Father. Both here and in the text that I read to you a bit ago from Romans 8 and we discussed this last week at length. In both places, Paul says that we cry out, Abba, Father, through the spirit. This demonstrates to us that that this is a cry for help. A recognition that there is lack A recognition that there is need. A recognition that this life is disappointing and hard. And we need to know that there is one who was watching out for us, who can meet our needs. Fundamental to the human condition in this fallen state is an innate fear and an inescapable loneliness. The longer I spend time helping people through discipleship and counseling, I am convinced that these are two things that all of us possess. An innate fear of almost everything and an inescapable loneliness. And so Jesus, in verses 4 through 5, not only has settled our debts And taken us from condemnation to justification. We were under God's penalty and now we have been declared not guilty. That's what that theological language means. Justification. We have been freed from God's penalty over our sin. And now we are innocent in his eyes. But verse 6, Jesus also ministers to us presently through his spirit. And therefore we can cry out with our innate fear of almost everything and an inescapable loneliness that creates an ache inside of us. You see, I think that even whenever we're smart, educated, well off, when our relationships are basically sound, when we've made good decisions and life seems to be going basically well, the slightest little twinge in our lives that that puts us off our equilibrium immediately brings that fear and anxiety back to the surface. The slightest thing can do that. Likewise, even those of us who seem to have the most healthy relationships deep down are pretty lonely. It's hard to be fully honest and open with people. It's hard to fully trust people. It's hard for us to believe that people can know us deeply and intimately and and that they won't run away from us. We are pretty fearful and we are pretty lonely. And I think that's why verse 6 is so poignant. The, the purpose of Jesus' first advent in verses 4 through 5 was to deal with past sins and to take us from death to life. But, but Jesus' first advent also secures to us the reality, the knowledge, the hope that he ministers to me in the here and now through my fear, through my loneliness. And therefore, I cry out. I have a good marriage. I, I really do. And I'm not saying that to impress you. I do. I have a wonderful marriage. I love my children, and I think my children love me. 
I have more than my fair share of loyal friends. But you know what? I fear. I'm one of the most anxious people I know. And you might be saying to yourself, no, you're not, I am. We could get it like into anxiety contest afterward and talk about this. At the end of the day, even when, though I have all those relationships, I can be pretty lonely at times, especially when I let my mind go there. But I think that what my father does because of the first advent of Jesus through the ministry of the Spirit is he allows me to face my anxiety square in the face. That inescapable loneliness, it wells up within me more often than I would like to admit. But then you know what he does through his spirit? He reminds me by his grace that he is there. And, and that's why I cry out, God, I, I cannot deal with life on my own. I, I must have you. And you see what Jesus has done through his first advent is he's not only freed me from my sins, but he's also with me all the time and he ministers to me through his spirit so that I have passed not only from death to life, but I have passed from, from no hope to hope. And I can cry out and there is one who hears me and there is one who ministers to me. And therefore the second purpose of the first advent of Jesus is that I'm no longer alone and I have access to God once again. We would be speculating if we went too far with this, but what must it have been like for Adam and Eve after the first sin to have that intimate relationship with their creator completely severed? We don't know how long they were alive before the fall, but, but they lived in perfect harmony with the creator, perfect bliss, and everything around them was perfect. But as soon as they sinned, not only was their relationship with him severed, their relationship with one another was damaged, their children were a disaster, and the whole creation, as we read earlier in Romans chapter 8, began to groan. I don't know that anyone has tasted the effects of sin more acutely and dramatically than them because they knew what it used to be like. But Jesus has come to restore us, those who are severed from God, to bring us back to the Father to experience that fundamental nature of, of sonship. The longer I disciple and counsel, not only do I realize that people have an innate fear and an inescapable loneliness, but we all have daddy issues. Every single one of us. If you are the kind of person that seeks to help people in life, you engage with people, you try to be friends with people, you try to point them to Jesus and help them grow in their faith, one of the things that you will quickly realize is that every person you help in one way or another has daddy issues. And I'm looking at you today and I've been in some measure of an intimate relationship with every single one of you and every single person. It's true. Some of you people had terrible fathers, terrible, that did the most horrible things to you. 
Some of you had very indifferent and either physically or emotionally absent fathers. Some of you actually had pretty good ones. They were faithful and kind to your mom. They were loyal to you. They were gentle and kind. But even still, the older you get, you see the holes, you see the flaws. And doesn't this make sense? Because in a world that is filled with people that are estranged from the creator, father, doesn't it make sense that all of us would have daddy issues? Doesn't it make sense that Satan would, would attack us at that very point? Because if, if your earthly father is a jerk, or worse, or if he's just sort of disappointing, or even if he's a great guy and fell short, which all fathers will, if you can find great disappointment or anger or frustration or despair at the thought of your own father, that might call into question the character of the eternal heavenly father. It's no mistake that Satan would tempt us and help us to struggle at that point. It's no mistake, therefore, that fathers are constantly under attack by the evil one. But there's hope in this. Because for those of us who had the best of fathers all the way to those who had the worst or maybe no father at all, there's the hope, there's the reality that there is one who will never fail. He'll never run out on us. He'll never beat us. He'll never disappoint us. He will smile at us us, and accept us even in the midst of our failures and struggles. That's why the cry of Abba Father that comes to us because of the first advent of Jesus is so important. All of us need that. So Jesus' first advent takes us from death to life, first purpose. Second purpose, because of Jesus' first advent, we have a fundamentally different relationship with the Father in the here and now, and we desperately need that. This Father, the Heavenly Father, can, can calm the innate anxieties. This Father alone can deal with the inescapable loneliness. Only he can. No one else can. But thirdly, and for us today, verse 7, I think, says to us that our prospect, our future, the thing we look forward to, is no longer condemnation but glorification. Again, Paul says in verse 7, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Formerly, we were slaves to sin, but now we have been brought into God's family as sons. Formerly, we were slaves with no rights, but now we have full rights. A slave does not have the prospect of a future, certainly not an inheritance, but a son does. And what if you were the kind of person that had such family connections that your family was so wealthy that when you became mature, you had access to to innumerable riches, to astounding wealth, to overwhelming supply? That's that's what verse 7 is saying to us. Before your prospect... Poverty, and even worse, death. 
And some of that's physical and some of that's metaphorical. But if you have come to the Father through Jesus, then our prospect has dramatically changed. We now have access in the here and now and also in the future to abundance, to a never-ending supply. In Paul's writings, whenever he talks about being an heir, there's sort of a present reality to it. We are the heirs, but there's also a future reality. We have not fully received the inheritance. So in a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 11 through 14, the apostle says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So it says there, first of all, we have obtained an inheritance. Then he goes on to say, So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we haven't fully acquired possession of it. To some degree we have it. To some degree we don't. So Galatians chapter 4 suggests to us that the first advent of Jesus has past realities, present realities, and future realities. The first advent of Jesus Christ changed everything. In the past, I went from death to life, condemnation to justification, guilty to not guilty. The first advent of Christ also reminds me that I'm no longer alone, that I can cry out to the Father and he hears me because he loves me. His son, Jesus, has fundamentally changed my relationship to him. But the first advent of Jesus also points me toward future hope, future grace. Paul says something similar in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as you are reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's future. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul also says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. To some degree present, but so much yet to be realized in the future. So you see, what Jesus has done for us in his first advent is blend together past, present, and and future realities of our salvation. And as we finish off this three-part look into Galatians chapter 4 this week, I think it's important for us to look forward to those future realities that Christ's first advent has secured for us. Turn with me, please, back to Romans chapter 8, where we read earlier together in our worship time. I want to highlight a few thoughts from this text as we consider the the future of our salvation. So I said to you last week as we looked at Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, it's helpful for us to pick up themes in that text and then to go other places where those themes are discussed and and see what else is brought out. What does Paul say here in Romans chapter 8? So 
we are, we are looking into this reality that Christ's first advent secures for us not only past, not only present, but future hope. Where else does Paul talk about this? Well, he talks about it in Romans chapter 8. Look in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That sounds a lot like Galatians chapter 4. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's very similar to what he's saying in Galatians 4. So so we've gone from, from condemnation, separation, alienation from God... Now to this amazing reality that we are sons of God and we have a future prospect. But notice what he says at the end of verse 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Whoa. Why is it that right next to to this idea of future inheritance, which is great news, that we've gone from lack to abundance, We've, we've gone from, from no hope to total hope. Why is it that right next to that, he butts up against that reality, the prospect of suffering? We read these verses earlier, but, but look in verse 19 again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. So why is it that right next to this promise of inheritance, future hope, is placed up against the reality of suffering? Why does Paul do that? That makes him kind of seem like a killjoy, right? It's like, I have good news and bad news. And it's like, which do you want to hear first? The balance of the text is more on the negative stuff. But the hope of it, as you go forward, the balance shifts because there's a future prospect for us. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, if we wait for it with patience. Look in verse 28. One of the most misapplied verses in all of the Christian canon. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see what Paul has done? He holds up the idea of inheritance, but then he says, All you heirs, sons and daughters, you're going to suffer. But through that suffering, there's going to come the finality of your adoption and you will receive glory. Then in verses 31 to 39, Paul poses all kinds of questions. What's our response to all of this? Beginning at verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword? No. In all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come or height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does Paul talk about suffering right next to the promise of inheritance? Because he hasn't finished redemption yet. He hasn't finished his redemptive plan yet. And until he does... Until he fully invades this planet and brings about full peace, until then, sin will have its drastic effects. Your loved ones will die. Fathers will abandon their children. Husbands will will leave their wives. Your children will get sick. You will struggle with your lusts. You will not always have enough money. Your co-workers will mistreat you. There will be war. There will be ethnic tension. These things and so many more are the reality in which we live. So what Paul does is he says, there's hope coming. But brothers and sisters, until it fully arrives, until future grace is fully realized, until then, you are going to agonize. You are going to suffer. In fact, doesn't it seem like sometimes, beloved, that we who love God, we who are loved by God, that sometimes it seems like we suffer more? King David's chief musician, Asaph, And Psalm 73 says that. Asaph saw the ungodly people around him, the godless people around him. And he cried out to God, Why is it, O Lord, that these people who do not love you, who reject you, who rebel against you, why is it that they seem to be at ease, whereas those who follow after your covenant, who love you, seem to have it more difficult? Why is that? But by the end of Psalm 73, Asaph understands that his future prospect is one of of full hope, of of recognition, of, of being an heir, and all the realities that come along with that. Turn with me, please, if you don't mind, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to find similar thoughts that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 8 here in Peter's first epistle. Look at verse 3. The apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Similar thoughts that Paul brings out in Romans 8. So to be clear in the logic of what we're trying to do today, just so we understand and we're all on the same page, we have used Galatians 4 as a text to to remind us of all the implications of Jesus' first advent. There are past realities, present realities, and future realities, the focus of today's discussion. In Galatians 4, 7, Paul suggests that we who are now sons and daughters of God have a future inheritance to come. And as you look at other texts where this idea of future inheritance as teased out, you find certain truths that come to the forefront, that, that jump off the page. We have seen them in Romans 8, and now we see them again in First Peter. But I want to just categorize them sort of briefly for us as we close today so that you can see that Jesus' first advent that secures for us future hope is something that's important for your present worship. So what are the implications for us? Well, Foundationally, we are freed from sin's consequences. Foundationally, from a future perspective, we have been freed from sin's consequences. Some of that has been already realized. We are heirs already. But some of that has not yet been fully realized. So in a sense, we have been freed from sin's consequences. But in a sense, that has not yet been fully realized. And that's why we look forward to the future. What are the consequences of sin? Well, we suffer and we worship ourselves. Isn't that what you see happening in the garden? God comes to Adam and Eve and he says to them, basically, your lives are going to be hard. Your marital relationship is going to be difficult. Oh, by the way, and all the rest of your relationships. The ground that you must work to get your food from it, now it's going to be hard. So what happened to Adam and Eve and all their offspring? They suffered. And they worshipped themselves. Whereas before there was total happiness and worship of the one true God and everything was great, now everything was marred. Everything was affected negatively. But what do we have to look forward to? Well, suffering and self-worship will come to an end. Isn't that what Paul is saying in Romans 8? The groaning will cease. Here in First Peter, he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, although it doesn't seem like a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus. And then in verse 8, we are looking forward to an inexpressible joy filled with glory. And one day we'll find full salvation. What's coming for those of us who are dealing with the consequences of sin, suffering, and self-worship? Well, eventually, guess what? Suffering and self-worship, it's going to come to an end. I say to you, brothers and sisters today, that I understand how difficult life is. And it doesn't do us any good to pretend like it's not like that, because it just is. I think it ebbs and flows. We've talked about that before. There are seasons of life that are kind of happy and good. There are other seasons of life where we, we don't want to get up in the morning. The last thing we want to do is pull back the covers, get dressed, help the kids, love our spouse, go to work, read our Bible, go to church, do the things we're supposed to do. Sometimes it's hard just to put one foot in front of the next. And it's amazing that we're in the, when we're in the midst of that, we, we forget that it kind of used to be good. And then often when we're in the midst of a pretty good season, we can kind of forget, at least to some degree, how it kind of used to be bad. But because it ebbs and flows, we always have this, this knowledge that the next hard thing is coming. It's interesting here that Peter says there are various trials. It might be persecution for your faith. That may have been one of the things that Peter had in mind here. But there's all kinds of other stuff. Basically, we live in a world that's infected by sin, and sin affects everything. Whether it's death or whether it's struggle with sin or whatever else you want to throw into the equation, sin affects everything. But one day, one day that won't be the case anymore. Not long ago, we spent some time in Revelation chapters 20 and 20, 21 and 22. And we saw that when, when Jesus and his Father bring the eternal city to this earth and completely recreate it, when they, when they bring heaven to earth... There'll be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more struggle. That's our future prospect. So to be clear, I'm saying to you that during this season, as we celebrate the first advent of Jesus, it's important for us to look backward, see what he's done for us. It's important for us to look presently at how we live, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We don't, we don't have to be alone. We don't have to constantly be racked with anxiety because the Father is with us. But I say to you, look forward as well. Because the first advent promises us that there's a second advent coming. And suffering and self-worship will, will come to an end. I think another implication for us is that suffering reveals the genuineness of our faith. The reason I say this to you is because Paul and Peter see this. You saw back in verse 17 of Romans chapter 8 that we'll be glorified Jesus if we also suffer with him. We see here in this same text that, that the genuineness of our faith, verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 1, is tested through this 
suffering through these various trials. It's easy to say you're a Christian. It's easy to say that you're following after God. It's it's easy to put on the religion hat. But this life is like a crucible. And all the impurities, all the things inside, suffering reveals that. And one of the reasons why it's so important during this Advent season to look forward to what's coming is that it helps sustain us. And while the impurities are being revealed in this crucible of life, our prospect is for something much, much better. And if our confidence is in Jesus and Jesus alone, then that will come out. I guess what I'm really saying here is that when it's all said and done, we can say that we belong to Jesus all we want. But you know what? Life will prove it. Life will prove it. When your children are sick, when your marriage is on the rocks, when you are agonizing over sin and struggling to choose God over sin, When unnatural death occurs, because all death is unnatural, it wasn't supposed to be that way here, and your soul agonizes over the grief, where does your mind turn? Do you manipulate and maneuver and posture to make life work? All the while knowing that that little voice in your head is saying, this doesn't work. You can't make life work. Or, alternatively, is your confession, my Savior has come. He has freed me from death. He ministers to me by his Spirit so that I'm fundamentally now changed in my relationship to the Father. And one day he'll come back and he'll make it all new. I will hang on in hope. We look forward to the implications of Christ's advent for our future because suffering is real. And not only do we look forward to it ending, we realize that suffering is used to to take out the impurities and to test whether or not we really believe. Do we really trust? This means that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the suffering, whatever the trial may be, whatever the suffering may be, that one of the most fundamental and reflexive things that we can do right away is to say, God is testing me here. Now, there's more to it than that. There there always is. In other words, we can't always understand all the reasons for the various trials we face. But one of them is that, that God is testing the genuineness of our faith. Are we the real deal? Is Jesus really enough? Do we we reflexively, instinctively posture and maneuver and manipulate whenever the trials come? Trying to, to put the pieces all back together, trying to make life work on our own, or as our most fundamental, reflexive, instinctive reaction to say, 
God, you're using this for good in me. That's what Romans 8, 28 is about. We sort of slap it on people like giving them two aspirin. And we expect that it's going to make them feel better. It doesn't. Romans 8, 28 is saying to us that there's a purpose to all of our trials, but you've got to go to the next couple of verses. And specifically what Paul says there in that text is that the good for us is that one day we will be around the throne of Jesus and we will look like him. That's what Paul's saying there. So do all things work together for good for those who love God? For those who are called according to his purpose? Yes. But what's his purpose? His purpose is that all of his sons and daughters will be fully restored. That's the purpose. And suffering reveals if you're the real deal or not. Lastly, and we could say so much more, just teasing out some implications of our future hope. Suffering by faith honors Jesus. If it's true what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that there's a purpose to all of our sufferings, and the purpose of that is that Jesus receives glory as his redeemed horde, sons and daughters, gather around his throne and we look a whole lot like him. Worshippers who are holy. That means that from first to last, this is all accomplished by Jesus. Who has taken us from condemnation to justification, from death to life? Past implications of Jesus' first advent. Who did that? Jesus did. By what means may I cry out in the present, Abba, Father, in the midst of my agony? Who did that? Jesus did that. Who's the one who keeps me going, looking forward to future glory? Jesus does that. Paul says that at the end of Romans chapter 8. Jesus intercedes for us. Notice here that that we are being kept by God. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And what's going to happen, verse 7? All of this is going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's our future prospect? Our future prospect is that Jesus, who secured for us past, is securing for us present, and one day will fully secure for us future hope. He will be glorified. Isn't that the purpose of all of the cosmos? The purpose of all creation is that God would be praised. What happened through the fall? That was marred. What's happening through the first advent of Jesus, where the Son of God took on flesh, kept all the laws that we could not keep, died the death we deserved, and raised to new life? Why did he do that? To restore us and all of his sons and daughters to the original design, which is that he would get glory and we would get joy. So I say to you, the first advent of Jesus secures for us past, present, and future hope. And because now we struggle with sin and all of its consequences, worshiping ourselves, and suffering, 
There's coming a day where suffering and self-worship, it'll all be over. In that day, the real genuineness of our faith will be revealed. And in that day, Jesus will stand in the middle of us and he will receive the glory that he is due. And we will be there only because he carried us to the end. So I say to you, brothers and sisters, look to him today. Hope in the one who has secured, is securing, and one day will fully secure your total salvation. Comfort each other with these words. Let's pray.